First Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Remember the theme of the little epistle that we've been reading for those of you who are just joining us. The theme of the epistle to the Thessalonians is the coming of Jesus Christ for his church. Paul began the letter with a note on how the church was born in chapter one, how the church was nurtured in chapter two, how the church was established in chapter three. Paul has exhorted the believers to walk in holiness in chapter four, verses one through eight, in harmony in chapter four, verses nine through ten, in honesty in chapter four, verses eleven and twelve. And now Paul is going to give us a massive dose of hope in verses 13 and chapter 5 in verses 1 all the way to verse 11. And since Paul has left the band of believers, have faced a series of trial and hardship, accusation, opposition, persecution. As a matter of fact, some have died. Loved ones are gone. And so questions began to emerge. The people who were left had questions. They were filled with pain and sorrow and grief. And they needed to know the truth about what happens when you die. And you see, we live in a world where death comes frequently and is no respecter of persons. With sorrow and grief come questions. And the questions may come from parents who, in their worst nightmare, have placed their baby in the crib for baby's night-night only to discover that the normal cry doesn't come at the normal time. Perhaps the most horrifying experience of my life can be put up there when I came with emergency service workers to the home of a young man and a young woman. And we found their baby's lifeless blue body lying in the crib. And the paramedics used an unfamiliar term. At least it was unfamiliar to me at the time. SIDS. Sudden infant death syndrome. And the parents were pleading and crying and asking the question, help me understand what has happened to my baby. I have prayed with families from Columbine. In New York, I spent 10 days at Ground Zero doing 12-hour shifts, 
Two of those days were spent at the family center. Two more days were spent at the morgue. I have lost count of how many tearful nights and hospital visits and funerals that I've attended. And Paul must have heard all of the same questions. Would their deceased loved ones be somehow handicapped by the second coming of Jesus? What would Jesus do about them? Will those who are alive have any advantage over those who have died? What is the truth about what happens when you die? And Paul wants to answer these questions and give comfort and consolation and encouragement and hope. And he does so based on these five facts. Number one, the fact of revelation that Jesus is the source of truth in verse 13. And then again in verse 15, the truth about the return of Jesus in verses 14 and 15. The truth about the resurrection. What really happens when you die in verses 15 and 16? The truth about the rapture, the final generation that is alive at the point when history and the future merge together and all of humanity's life and circumstances come to a crashing halt. And then the reunion, the truth about our eternal destiny with Christ in verse 18. And so it begins with, The source of truth in verse 13, Paul writes, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, and rest assured whenever the Bible writes, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. There's so much confusion and ignorance about the thing that is being discussed. Few things are more confusing and divisive than this particular issue about the truth about what happens when you die and the truth about Jesus' second coming. And so Paul writes and he says, I need you to understand concerning those who have fallen asleep. Right away there's confusion because some have suggested that this means soul sleep. But make no mistake about it, when a person dies, their soul does not go to sleep. Their body takes on the appearance of sleep. And so sleep became a euphemism. It became a tender way of describing a person who had died. Jesus uses it himself in Luke chapter 11, when he talks about his friend Lazarus and the disciples say, well, what's wrong with Lazarus? And Jesus euphemistically says he's asleep. And they go, well, Jesus, if he's asleep, maybe we better leave him alone. And he says, point blank, look, he's dead. Because, again, people misunderstand things. Paul doesn't want the believers to be ignorant and make no mistake about it. The pagan world in which Paul lived for the most part had little hope for life after death. A typical inscription on a pagan grave reads this way. I was not. I became. I am not. I care not. The philosophy is very old. It's a philosophy of despair and hopelessness. It's the belief that we came from nowhere and that we're going nowhere and that our current pain is a point of reference in a journey of meaninglessness. And there are people who believe this lie. 
There are people who believe that your presence here is an accident or a mistake. Atheistic existentialists believe that life is at best meaningless, pointless, worthless, useless. Over 10 years ago now, two gunmen, students, shot and killed 13 people and injured 21 more in what was at that time perhaps the, the nation's worst school shooting. And one of the gunmen, Eric Harris, he, he wrote this on his website, quote, My belief is that if I say something, it goes. I am the law, and if you don't like it, you die. If I don't like you, or I don't like what you want me to do, you die. Dead people can't do many things like argue, whine, I can't repeat the next word, complain, narc, rat out, criticize, or even talk, so that the only way to solve arguments with all of you out there, I just kill. God I can't wait till I can kill you people. I don't even care if I die in the shootout. All I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can. The Roman philosopher Seneca said, Anyone can stop a man's life, but no one is death. A thousand doors open to it. On the, on the Science Channel, even last night, Ray Kurzweil, perhaps a, a noted author and scientist who has brought the world some of the most innovative inventions, has come to a place in his life where he believes that the answer for life is in science and technology. He'll only drink purified water. He drinks green tea once a day. He eats 250 supplements every single day in the hope that science and technology will catch up to his own corruption and deterioration so that he doesn't have to die. I'll let you know when he does die. What are we supposed to believe about death? How can mortal human beings penetrate beyond the grave and find peace and courage? And the Bible gives us those things exactly. Peace in order to live now and courage in order to live Later, can people die and come back and tell us about their experiences? Bogus charlatans like John Edwards in his program called Crossing Over claim to be able to do just that. Edwards claims to hear the voices of the dead who want to contact loved ones out here on the earth. Scientists have investigated near-death phenomenon. Occultists have sought a channel um, to spirit beings from other dimensions. I call this cosmic interdimensional channel surfing. People claim to have encounters with the dead. People are hurting and they are grieving. And when you are hurting and you are grieving, you become open and vulnerable and gullible. Because you want the pain to go away. Several years ago, a book was published entitled Beyond Death's Door by Dr. Maurice Rawlings. Dr. Rawlings is a specialist in internal medicine and cardiovascular disease, and he's resuscitated many people who've been declared clinically dead. And Dr. Rawlings, a devout atheist, quote, considered all religion 
hocus pocus, unquote, and death, nothing more than painless extinction, unquote. But something happened in 1977 that brought a dramatic change in the life of Dr. Rawlings. He resuscitated a patient, terrified and screaming, who was descending into the flames of hell, quote, each time he regained heartbeat and respiration, the patient screamed, I'm in hell. He was terrified and pleaded with me to help him. I was scared to death. Then I noticed a genuinely alarmed look on his face. He had a terrified look worse than the expression seen in death. This patient had a grotesque grimace expressing sheer horror. His pupils were dilated. He was perspiring and trembling. He looked as if his hair was standing on end. And then a very strange thing happened. The patient said, don't you understand? I'm in hell. Don't let me go back to hell. The man was serious. And it finally occurred to me that he was indeed in trouble. He was in a panic like I'd never seen before. Unquote. Dr. Rollins said, no one who could have heard those screams and saw the look of terror on his face could doubt for a single moment that he was actually in a place called hell. The doctor went on to make this statement. Until you know where you're going, it's not safe to die. I couldn't make this up. No kidding. Death is a certainty. It is a mystery. But someone has the facts about Death. And in verse 15, if you just look just ahead, it becomes such an important and critical issue because the opening line in verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Why should we substitute mere human speculation for divine revelation? The Lord Jesus Christ has taken out all of the guesswork. Note what it says. Where did Paul get his information? Well, here's Paul. You know, I was watching Oprah and this guy came on. No, Paul doesn't get it from ABC and he doesn't get it from NBC. He doesn't get it from CNN. He doesn't even get it from Fox News. Paul doesn't get it from local Judean journalists looking for a big breaking story. Paul claims that he got this information directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why this is so very, very important to you? Because who has more credibility than a person who has died and then who has come back to life never to die ever again? This is so important. Paul didn't make up the story. He didn't steal the story. He didn't get it from some unnamed source. He receives his information from God. And Jesus Christ is the only reliable record of information about what happens when we die. And that's why it's so important. 
Paul has already told the Thessalonians in chapter one, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's talking about the fact that Jesus comes back to life to deliver us from the wrath. What is the wrath that he's talking about? The certain judgment that God is going to pour out on a world that hates and rejects Jesus. Ever since Jesus conquered death, we don't have to fear death. And we don't have to fear the future. And so in verse 14... It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The implication being, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul is in effect making the statement, that is exactly what we believe. That's exactly what we believe. Not just with our mind. Not just simply because we've read it in the Bible, but it is that information that has caused a transformation of our heart. We don't just believe it with our head, but we've experienced with it in our heart and it's changed us. The New Testament repeatedly, repeatedly teaches that Jesus will return. Let me ask you a question. How many times would the New Testament have to say it before you'll believe it? One time? Ten times, a hundred times, two hundred times, three hundred times. Let me tell you something. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. There are 318 references to the second coming of Jesus. Do you know what this means? That one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament is a direct or a specific Citation concerning the second coming of Jesus. And this is why the world hates this doctrine so much. This is why there are mockers and scoffers. This is why the moment that you open up your mouth and you say to anyone, hey, guess what? Jesus Christ is coming back. People will laugh at you. <laughs> laugh at you. They won't laugh at Ray Kurzweil, who... Drinks purified water, green tea, 250 supplements, and he looks you straight in the eye and he goes, I'm going to live until we find a cure for death. Yeah, that's the right time to laugh. You know, the person who mocks the scripture, when the scriptures say, it's appointed once for a human being to die, it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. Which seems to make more sense to you as you look out on the parade of humanity and you ask and answer the question, do people live and then do they die? Jesus comes back, not simply for the reason that you might think we've already seen. Number one, Jesus comes back to save us in First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and ten. Number two, he comes back to serve us. We've saw that in First Thessalonians chapter two, verses 19 and 20 in this joyous reunion. 
which I'll talk about a little bit more later. And number three, he comes back to provide stability or assurance to our existence. First Thessalonians chapter three, verses 11, 12 and 13. And Jesus comes back for yet another reason in the fourth chapter. It's so that we can have hope in time of sorrow and in time of sadness and in time of despair. And some of you are there right now. I know because I've been with you. 2009 was not kind to you. Like me, you lost a loved one. It might have been your mother or your father. It might have been your brother or your sister. It might have been your child. But here's what you know. When you have experienced sorrow and sadness and grief and despair, you want hope. I was standing in line one day and there was a Russian lady who, I think she was from the Ukraine, she was standing right in front of me. And she goes, I love lines. I said, why, why do you love lines? And she says, in line, all of us are equal. And I go, that's true. We're all standing here, we're all equal. Death has been called the great leveler. With death, it makes everyone equal. Death makes us equal. But I want to ask you a question. Does that bring you comfort? It doesn't bring me comfort. There's no comfort in knowing that death makes us equal. Equal loss, equal sorrow, equal separation, equal grief. And therein lies its power. To create the deepest and most abiding pain that the heart can ever experience. Because when you love someone, when you really love someone, you want them back. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that they have every reason to believe that they'll see their loved one again. They will return with Jesus. They are alive. And the reason why they are alive is because Jesus is alive. No wonder Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. You have to understand something. The Thessalonians... Even though you're open, you've got your Bible open and you're reading from this book, you might make the mistake of historically and mentally and intellectually distancing yourself from the people that Paul is writing to. And you forget they are people like us. When their child dies, it breaks their heart. When their parents die, it breaks their heart. When their loved one dies, they cry. And their hearts ache, just like you. I have seen tears of grief, and I've seen tears of joy. I have seen scores of parents and teachers and police officers and firefighters weeping tears of joy in discovering that their children have been rescued. And at the end of verse 15, 
Paul writes that we, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. As a matter of fact, at the end of verse 15, in first, verse 15, look at that word precede, underline it or draw attention to it. The word means to so order or control circumstances that a certain proposed act will not take place, unquote. The idea is our presence on the earth, our life in this world will not prevent our loved one from being with Jesus. Now, the reason why this may not make a whole lot of sense to you, for those of you who live in a culture and a society like I do, where there's medium and ghost whisperer with their constant, flagrant, wicked foolishness that the dead linger on the earth. That was a common pagan belief. And it's a common belief now that the dead linger that somehow they're drawn or they're attached to this particular world and nothing could be further from the truth. There's nothing creepier than the idea of my grandma just hanging out watching me in the shower or whatever. Doesn't that just creep you out? Paul is in effect saying we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And remember what I've said, sleep becomes a euphemism. It's a description not of the soul, but of the body. And then in verse 16, look what it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The reason why the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus, will descend from heaven is because that's where he is. The Bible says that he's seated at the right hand of the father. The early church father said he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Speaking of the resurrection of the righteous dead. Now, different denominations tease each other with these words. And the dead in Christ will rise first. I heard a Pentecostal say, and the dead in Christ will rise. This is proof positive that the Baptist will go to heaven first. Now, look, if you're a Baptist, don't write me a letter, okay? It's just a joke. It could just as easily have gone the other way. That's not the point. It isn't the dead, lifeless, apathetic, indifferent. Here's the truth. That Paul is trying to make. The dead will be resurrected. That's the New Testament solution in part to the problem of death. You're not necessarily reconstructed or reincarnated. There are people who say, well, you know, you come to the end of your life and you come back as a beetle bug or whatever. And you go, look. If there is transmigration of souls and you're reincarnated over and over and over again, what precipitated the process to begin with? Why was anyone ever brought into existence and then why are they reincarnated? My brother, you're asking a really important question. Well, and what's the answer? Working on it. No, the Bible tells us 
that we are resurrected. And when Paul, by the way, preached the resurrection of the dead to the Athenian philosophers, they mocked him. To the Greeks, the great goal in life was to have a perfect body. And they spent their whole life to get a perfect body. Some of you are way, way young, but some of you, like me, are a senior citizen. And you'll remember in the late 50s, there was a guy who would come on. There was an exercise show called Jack LaLanne. And Jack LaLanne, he would come on and he would do jumping jacks. This guy was fit. And in the 60s, man, he was looking good. He was fit. In the 1970s, he would swim to Alcatraz Island, towing a rowboat filled with people. This guy's fit. And in the 80s, there he is, still working. In the 90s, there he is. And in the year 2000, he, along with Dick Clark, sold their souls to the devil for immortality. No, I'm just kidding. Just joking. Did you some of you who have no life maybe stayed home and watched Dick Clark on Channel 7 when the ball descended and ringing in the New Year's? And here is Dick Clark, 80 years old, with exactly two and a half quarts of Botox in his face. And you think, man, how much longer is this going to last? That's what the Greeks thought. They thought, hey, look, you have this perfect body. It gets old. It gets tired. It gets tattered. What is the use of having an old, useless body? The Greeks thought, even if the resurrection were true, why would you want an old, wrinkled, crippled, injured, bent, useless, resurrected body? They began to do the math. They would think, look, people die. They go in the dirt. The worms crawl, crawl in. The worms crawl out. The worms play pinnacle on your snuff. You de decompose. The grass grows. The cow comes and eats the grass. And somebody milks the cow. And your molecules are scattered all over the heaven. What about them? And they think that they've got you. They think, hey, how's God going to resurrect somebody like that? And then you just simply open up your Bible to the very first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, if God can create the heavens and the earth, do you think that he can reconstitute and resurrect your body appropriately? And so in verse 17, Paul writes, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Paul talks about a terminal generation, a generation that is alive at the coming of Jesus. And we're going to talk more about this as our study unfolds in the weeks ahead. There is a coming of Jesus with for the saints. And then there is a coming of Jesus with the saints. But in verse 17, I want to draw your attention to three unique sounds. Number one, the Lord shouts. It says the Lord descends with a shout in verse 16, the sound of a trumpet and the trumpet of God. And the third sound, the voice of an archangel. Now, I don't know about you, but I come from a family when dad comes home, everybody knows it. My house was like a very bad TV episode of Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Remember when Ricky Ricardo would come home and he would go, 
Oh, Lucy, I'm home. Like the whole world needs to know that. That's exactly what I think is happening here. I believe that the shout is in part God's way of saying, I'm home. And you're going to hear it. By the way, it was God's way of saying, it's time. Trumpets were sounds that ancient armies would use to declare war or to announce a special time or to gather people for a journey or to herald the arrival of an important person. So it makes perfect sense that they would use this metaphor of a trumpet sounding. And why an archangel? Well, perhaps angels are the only ones with a voice big enough to raise the dead. But I suspect that Jesus does not need the voice of an archangel. Do you remember in John 11 when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus, after being four days dead, comes hopping out of the grave. I think there's a reason why he said Lazarus, come forth. Because if he would have just said, come forth, everyone would have come forth. Boy, would that have been embarrassing. Can you imagine? He goes, come forth. And he goes, okay, everybody back except for Lazarus. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. Here's the teaching of the New Testament. The grave is not the end. And look what it says. Why is there going to be a rapture? In verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be hotapadzo, caught up, and remain with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, I need you to ask this question because it becomes important in your Bible study. Not simply, is there going to be a rapture? The answer is yes. The next important question is, why is there going to be a rapture? And remember the context of Paul's writing. He is comforting them because their loved ones had died. They are in mourning. So why does God snatch, rapture, forcibly remove the people just prior to his second coming? And I think that the answer, in part, is to provide hope in this world. That's what he, Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason why is because the world is dying. And when the world is dying, and the people in it are dying... It's going to be up to you to provide hope. Human suffering takes place because of human sin. It isn't because of God's divine apathy or indifference. God is going to do something about sin. God is going to do something about salvation. God has done something about it. And so Paul writes, caught up together with them in the clouds. The word caught up, by the way, in the original language comes from a single Greek word. It's the word hotapazo. And the word has several meanings depending on the context. The Latin fathers translated this word rapturis. 
Our English cognate is rapture. Some people even use the term translation. It's the idea where you go from one thing to another thing. The word also could be used to use the word caught up or violently carried away. That means by force. As a matter of fact, that's the way it's used in John chapter 16, verse 15, to carry away by force. And some have speculated that Satan and his demons are working overtime to keep us from leaving the earth. Warren Wearsby commented, quote, I trust it does not suggest that some saints will be so attached to the world that they have to literally be dragged away. No, Jesus, it's the last season of Lost. I need to know how this ends. You know, we laugh, but I've heard more than one people say, one person say, Jesus, you can't come back until I get married. Jesus, you can't come back until this or Jesus, you can't come back until that. Make no mistake about it. Jesus can come back whenever he wants. Like Lot being delivered from Sodom, sometimes an angel will have to come and take a firm grip on you and remove you. It also means to rescue from danger or destruction. And that's how it's used in Acts chapter 23, verse 10. And so when you talk about it means being removed from danger or destruction, it's my belief that the world is going to face the judgment of God. You know, one of the most amazing things about Columbine that day, I was just literally from here to that door. And children were running. Tens of children, scores of children, hundreds of children. They were running for their life. Police officers and firefighters. They are there because they want the children rescued. When you are a parent and your child is in danger, you want to remove them from the danger. Do you seriously think that God is less kind than you? God knows that this world will face judgment. It will be severe. And it will be profound. But remember why the world is facing judgment. Not because they've accepted Christ, but because they've rejected Christ. Not because they've embraced the good news. It's because they've rejected the good news. The word is also used in Acts chapter 8, verse 39, to describe Philip when he's caught away by the Holy Spirit and he comes in contact with the Ethiopian government official. The Bible says that we who are alive and remain will be caught up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. By the way, do you know how fast the twinkling of an eye is? It's the amount of time that it takes for light to reflect off the surface of your cornea. Somebody corrected me in first service. I said 146,000 miles per second. And he goes, nope, 186,211 miles per second. I go, got me. <laughs> How fast is that? The amount of time that it takes for light to reflect off the surface of your eye, that's pretty quick. It also means to claim for oneself. And this is 
Jesus Christ's perspective of his church. Caught away means I'm taking what belongs to me. Do you belong to Jesus? Is there a throne in heaven that has your name on it? Is there a crown in heaven that only your head will fix? I'm going to suggest to you that if you are a Christian, that that is exactly true. It also means to move to a new place. Paul used the term in relationship to his vision of heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. But look what it says in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And here's what Paul is saying. The coming of Jesus is not a useless doctrine that we use to argue amongst ourselves, but it's supposed to be the mechanism whereby we impart encouragement and comfort and hope. When it says, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There were two Greek words for air. An ancient Greek citizen would stand on Mount Olympus, which is 6,403 feet in elevation, and he or she would stand, and when they would point downward, they would say air. And when they would point skyward, they would say ether. Air was the idea that was used to describe the atmosphere. Ether was the idea to describe that realm just outside of our planet's atmosphere. Meat carried with it the idea of greeting a royal person or embracing an important dignitary. Paul says, we will meet the Lord in the air. We will experience a glorious reunion. We will be given glorified bodies. We will be reunited. We will be reconciled. We will be with the Lord forever. And it'll be a day of reckoning. In the scripture, in Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema. It is the time in which Christians receive their reward. We are reunited and we are reunited with our loved ones. I'm often asked the question, almost weekly, will we know each other in heaven? Spurgeon's answer is my favorite. Do you think we will be less smart in heaven than here on the earth? Sometimes I misquote him and say, do you think we will be more stupid in heaven than we are on the earth? No. We are going to know. In First John chapter 3, it says, we will know and we will be known. You know, on Wednesday, I talked about the gravestone. The gravestone that reads, pause, my friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And someone had scratched these lines underneath. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Yeah. It's not safe. Unless you know where you're going. Catherine Marshall wrote a biography of her very famous husband, Peter Marshall. It's called A Man Called Peter. And he was a pastor and a former chaplain of the United States Congress. And in the book, she tells a particularly touching story of a young terminally ill son 
named Kenneth. And because Kenneth was so ill, he was forced to stay inside for long periods of time. And he couldn't run and play like the other children. And his mother would read to him stories of heroism and courage of kings and castles. And Kenneth was particularly fond of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And he loved bold adventure. And Kenneth loved stories where heroes took risks and, and they righted wrongs. And he also knew that he was dying. And one day Kenneth asked his mother the dreaded question, the question that she knew that would one day come and she didn't know exactly how to answer it. He asked her, Mom, what's it like to die? What does it feel like? And she struggled to maintain her composure. She excused herself and she propped herself against the stove and she began to pray. And she said, Lord, give me wisdom and composure, sensitivity and thoughtfulness. She prayed. She asked God to help keep her from crying. And she went back out and she said, Kenneth, you remember that when you were a tiny boy, how you used to play so hard that all night, all day you would play and you would be too tired to undress and you would tumble into mom's bed and you would fall asleep. And Kenneth said, yes. And she said, that wasn't your bed. It wasn't where you belonged. And you'd stay there for a little while. And in the morning, much to your surprise, you would wake up and you would find yourself in your pajamas, in your own room, in your own bed. She said, Kenneth, do you remember? He said, yes. She said, that wasn't your bed. It wasn't where you belonged. But your father would come and he would pick you up in his big, strong arms and carry you to the place where you belong. She said, Kenneth, death is just like that. We wake up one morning and we find ourselves in the place where we belong because Jesus Christ has picked us up and placed us exactly where we belong. And the lad's shining face looked up into hers and she understood that he understood that there would be no fear, only love. And trust in his little heart as he went to meet the father. He never questioned ever again. And a few weeks later, he fell asleep. You see, the coming of Jesus brings with it comfort and hope. But for the unbeliever, terror, dread. For the, for the Christian, the coming of Jesus is supposed to serve as an incentive to pray carefully and serve faithfully and watch specifically and to separate yourself from sin and attach yourself to the Savior. Christian, God wants you to know this so that you can provide comfort. Non-Christian, God wants you to cry out to him. To experience his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and hope. God wants you to believe the truth about Jesus in your heart and confess it with your mouth so that your heart will be transformed. 
Let me pray for you for just a moment. Heavenly Father, I pray for that Christian who's going to experience hardship and pain. Lord, I pray that you would create in a heart deeply divided by grief, comfort and hope. But for the dark heart, for the empty heart, for the unbelieving heart. Lord, I pray that you would bring light and truth. Lord, I pray for that person who's never trusted you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that even now that they would cry out to you and they would pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he died on the cross for my sins. And that he rose from the dead for me. And that he's alive and that he can change me. Lord, I don't want to just believe this with my mind or just even simply say it with my lips. I want to believe it in my heart so I will be changed. Lord, we know that the soul that sins, it will die. We know that in Adam, death came into the world. But in Jesus, everyone can experience life and hope and in love. And for that person, Lord, who cries out to you, there's a new life and a new hope. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who doesn't know you. They need to know Jesus in a real way and in a personal way. Lord, I pray that even now that they would pray that prayer. Heavenly Father, give me a new heart. Heavenly Father, I believe the truth about Jesus. I believe that he knows the truth about what happens when you die. And I want to know him and I want to love him and I want to serve him. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to come up after the service. There are going to be men and women who would like to encourage you and give you some resources that will help you on your journey in this life, knowing that there's an ultimate journey awaiting you. Let's stand.